and I encourage you to take them out as we continue our journey in 2 Peter. Spent a lot of time in 1 Peter. We're going to spend the next number of weeks in 2 as well as we continue our journey and exploring all that God has for us and the things He's designed us to be. I don't know if any of you read the Daily Bread on a regular basis. Uh, one of the things that I do in the morning just kind of help me to focus and, and all of that. I found an interesting article this week in the Daily Bread of a thief who was holding up a minister and asking for his money. As the minister began to reach into his pocket, his collar was revealed, and the thief said, I notice you're a priest, I'm sorry, you can go. To which the priest reached into his pocket and said, well, I have a candy bar, do you want that? And the thief said, no, I've given up candy for Lent. And I sat there thinking, you gave up candy for Lent, but you're still a thief. You want us to look at you through spiritual eyes based on what you just said, but you've got a gun in your hand holding people up. Somehow those two things just don't go together. The Proverbs writer said, if someone says he is godly, his actions will verify it. James says, don't just tell me you're a follower of Christ. Don't just mouth the words. Let me see it fleshed out in your daily life and attitude. How we live out of Christianity is the best indication that we really are a follower of Jesus. How we live out our Christianity is the best indication that we really are a follower of Jesus. Jesus confronted some of the most religious people of his day. He said to them things like this, I don't get it. You go to church, you give your money, yet you never display joy, grace, and mercy. Giving and going are great, don't get me wrong, he said, but if it's not making a difference in how you live it out, then I'm not sure if you really grasp what it is you're going there for. He continued to say, you look good on the outside, you're all dressed up, you look great, but on the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And he's addressing that to the most religious people of his day. In 2 Peter chapter 2, chapter 1, the Apostle Peter gives us some building blocks, some things that we need to utilize in our life, build on the foundation of faith in Christ that are some of the measures of genuine faith, not just declared faith, yes, I'm a Christian, but genuine faith, qualities and character traits that confirm that what you said really has taken place. Coming to faith and committing your life to Christ is not the end product of your journey. It is the beginning. Once you come to faith in Christ, there are some things you need to add to be able to make it to the end of your journey with Jesus. We'll see how important that is next Sunday morning in the sermon, not just the beginning. Peter's list was never meant to be an exhaustive list, but necessary components in your journey with Jesus. According to Princeton Research Center, 82% of the people they surveyed felt they really needed to grow in their spiritual life. But George Barna found out in his research that even though people said they want to grow in their spiritual life, they don't do much about it. In the book, The Second Coming of the Church, he says the Christian church in North America has some pretty significant problems. One is that there are a lot of Christians who don't act like Christians, and the reason they don't act like Christians is that they don't think like Christians, and the reason they don't think like Christians is that many of them really don't understand what Christianity is genuinely all about. He went on to say that may sound startling, but they found very convincing proof that Christians have sat through thousands of sermons in Sunday school classes, 
read the scripture, heard the stories, listened to Christian radio, watched Christian TV, tons of exposure to the truth, but somehow it never made it into their lifestyle. Can you imagine that? That there are people out there like that. Who go to church on a regular basis, who sat in Sunday school all their lives. I grew up Presbyterian, and we had those Sunday school pins. Y'all remember those, any of it? Man, you, they'd walk like this, because they had so many of those pins. But I saw and came across some of those miserable and nasty people I've ever been around. And it just baffled me as a young kid, watching them grow up, knowing they went to Sunday school class all their life and never missed a Sunday and got a pin but really weren't different in their attitude and their actions about life. Churches need to be a place where we get more than facts and faces, people and places, but a place where we really understand principles and truth, attitudes that need to be developed, where I'm applying biblical truth in every day of my life, where my spiritual life begins to develop. I've got to constantly, in my journey with God, be on the learning curve. People say they want to develop their spiritual life, but not everyone does much about it. First Peter chapter 2, he said, you've got to crave spiritual milk. He uses a word that is as passionate as anything you can imagine. That you have to go after it with everything you've got. And Paul says in Hebrews, but don't stay there. Continue to add more. Continue to grow up in your spiritual life. Continue to get more solid food in your relationship with God. The basic header of all of this is a term that has been around the church for ages. It's called sanctification. Not just salvation in Christ. Not just making a decision to follow Jesus, but really growing in my faith day by day, week by week, year by year. As I continue in this journey with God, the more Him that I'm around, the more like Him I become. If you're in your Bibles now, you're in 2 Peter chapter 1. Bible, you version, whatever that may be. His divine power has given, just let me give you a note. How many of you do use the version? Four of you. Oh, okay, a few of you. When you download it, you'll notice, because somebody pointed this out to me last week, and I, I didn't get it before, but when you download it, there'll be two or three different NIVs that you can use. Have you noticed that yet? One is a, a 1984 version, and one is the more current version. The one in your pew, if you have a Bible in your pew, is a 1984 version. They're very similar, just some of the wording has changed. And so sometimes that's confusing as to what I'm reading and what you're hearing. It depends on if you're following you version, which one you're doing. You're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape from the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Now for that reason... Because of everything he has done, make every effort to add to your faith. Add first goodness. Add to goodness knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. For if you do these things or possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone who doesn't do them, he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Right away you notice that God has given us everything we need for our spiritual journey. Salvation, forgiveness, power, his spirit, the promises of God. The scripture is filled 
with the promises of God. He has promised us, and I've got verses for all of these. I won't share them all this morning. He has promised in Isaiah to hear our prayers, in Matthew to reward us for being faithful, to never withdraw his presence, to receive and help those who come to him, to send his son Jesus back to earth, to never leave us comfortless, to never forsake us, to never allow our sufferings and heartaches to become unbearable, to never give up on us when we make mistakes, to provide for all of our physical and spiritual needs, to give wisdom and guidance for those who seek it, to forgive our sins when we confess them, and to someday put an end to death and evil. That's just a few of the promises of God. All the way through Scripture, many of the things that we receive over and over through the Word of God that He provides. But you and I have a part to play as well. That's why He uses this phrase, make every effort. Which puts a responsibility on you and I. I've got to want to go after it. I've got to want to grow in my spiritual life. God has done his part. Now I've got to be willing to do my own. Y'all knew I grew up on a dairy farm. One of the greatest places on the planet. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Pursuit of Holiness, uses the illustration of a farmer on a dairy farm. He talks about the farmer plowing his fields, sowing the seed, fertilizing and cultivating, all the while knowing that in a final analysis... There are things outside of himself he cannot control. He knows that he can't cause the seed to germinate, nor to produce the rain or the sunshine that's necessary in growing the crop. For a successful harvest, he's absolutely dependent on God for those things. Yet the farmer knows that unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow, plant, fertilize, and cultivate, he can't expect to harvest. In a sense, he's in a partnership with God, and he'll only reap its benefits if he's willing to carry out his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint adventure between God and the farmer. The farmer can't do what God does, and God will not do what the farmer should do. He goes on to say this. We can justly say as accurately that the pursuit of holiness, righteousness with God, is a joint adventure between God and the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without any effort on your own part. God made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. He doesn't do that for us. We Christians love to talk about the provisions of God, how Jesus has defeated sin on the cross and given us a spirit to empower us in victory over sin, but we very seldom talk about our responsibility in this walk of holiness. If you want to read a great short book, not only that one, Pursuit of Holiness, but A.W. Tozer's Pursuit of God, he passionately talks about the necessity of growing in our walk with God. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. God says, those who seek me will find me, but only when you seek me with all your heart. So Peter places a burden of responsibility on us, as God does, does as well. Now he gives us some things that we need to make sure we understand. Number one, he says here is goodness, moral excellence. The ability to choose the good when choices in front of me are bad or evil and other choices are good. The ability to know that in the midst of all the circumstances and situations and decisions out there that I have to make, as I continue in my journey with Christ, the more and more I'm confronted with those decisions, the more and more I make moral choices. The things that I know that I ought to do. I have a solid foundation of ethics. I know what's right and wrong. But it's not simply knowing what's right and wrong. It's what I choose to do based on a given situation out there. It infers that the more time I spend with Jesus, the more I begin to reflect his character and the more my morality begins to change. 
You and I are confronted every single day of our life with choices. Good or bad. Good or better. And as we continue in our journey with God, the more we seek His face, the more I'm around Him, the better I, I become in making those right choices when so many of them are in front of me. Second thing he says is knowledge. And not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. A lot of people that understand biblical knowledge, they can even quote Scripture. I, as I said a moment ago, I've known people who claim to know Jesus can quote Scripture, but some of the most miserable and negative people I've ever been around. And I don't know how the two go together. The kind of knowledge that he's referring to here is the knowledge that begins to change how I think and how I act. At the end of the message last Sunday morning, I quoted that statement from D.L. Moody, great evangelist of years gone by. And when referring to the Bible, he said, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Powerful statement. The problem with that statement is that just knowing the book won't necessarily keep you from sin unless you apply it. Just knowing the scripture, just being able to quote it, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to live it out. I know way too many people who read the book, have read the book, and quote the verses, but don't live it out. The issue is more than biblical knowledge, but the application of what it teaches me. It's not just knowing Old Testament stories and who Abraham, Isaac, and Moses was, but what God teaches me out of understanding those stories and the application as to how it's fleshed out in my day-to-day living. Jesus, as I said a moment ago, confronted the most knowledgeable people of his day, who had all kinds of biblical knowledge, but never seemed to live it out in practical application. It's more than just knowing the Word of God. It's applying it and taking those lessons or those things that I've seen about Moses and Abraham and David and on and on the list goes. And what does it mean to me? God, what do you want me to change? Where do I need to grow? What of this do I need to utilize in my spiritual development? Third thing he said is self-control. Self-control, it means, this is a great line, I think I've got a blank in your sermon notes. It means controlling my passions instead of my passions controlling me. It means controlling my passions instead of letting my passions control me. You know, phrases like, I just couldn't help myself, aren't true. Sure you could. I could. I, I just couldn't help myself. Yes, you could. You chose not to. Hey, I'm Italian. We just yell. All right? No excuse. I just don't have time to read the Bible. Sure you do. Sure you do. It's taking the time. It's about discipline. It's about self-control. It means I'm honestly aware of my tendencies, my challenges, and my weaknesses. And I take the steps that are necessary toward control because if I don't control them, they will control me. And I'm telling you, not only do you know your own weaknesses, and I'm sure others know your weaknesses, but our enemy Satan does. He is one of the most keen observers of human nature, and he knows every weakness you have. And Peter already said to us, I just want you to know he's going to destroy you with those. If you don't learn and understand what spiritual self-control is all about. Instead of them controlling me, I control them. I make good, solid choices when all of those issues are there, I respond, I don't react. I think clearly, as the Word of God in Proverbs says, before I speak, knowing that the tongue has the power to give life 
or to bring death. And so I back up enough to think through the process before I respond. Perseverance, number four. The ability to stand firm through difficulty. The ability to endure, to not give up or to give in, no matter what. To stay the course consistent to the end. One of the reasons that we uh, very clearly see in Corinthians where Paul said, all of this is written so we can learn from their mistakes. And that is that only one-third of biblical character finished well. And so we need to learn some really solid lessons about that. Caleb and Joshua were two of my favorite in the entire Old Testament. These men near the end of their life said, look, you guys want to decide who you're going to follow? That's fine. But for me and my house, we're serving God. From the very beginning to the very end of their spiritual journey, they finished well. They really were consistent to the end. Some of the people that I admire the most out of life or in life are those who are consistent in their journey with God to the very end, who got sweeter as the years went by, who you knew as you watched them develop had gone through some really difficult times, some very dark circumstances, some really tough moments. But as they continued to mature in Christ, they made it to the end, they saw what was on the other side, they knew it was worth it, and they stayed the course. They were consistent all the way through. Did they make mistakes? Of course. Who doesn't? But they continue in their journey with God knowing that there was an end in mind that they really wanted to reach. They wanted to get there with everything they had. Perseverance is not blind fate or laissez-faire, what will be, will be, or Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking, but it's a complete and total confidence in the power and promises of God that He will see me through this, not always out of it, but through it and to the end and will never leave me or forsake me. Who really will walk with me through the valley of death. The ability to endure because they know that in the end it will be worth it all. I won't take time this morning to read, but it's in your sermon notes this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. You see it in there? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 through 2 through 12, 3. It is one of the most powerful sections of Scripture I've ever read. If you know Hebrews 11, you know it's the hallmark of faith. It begins in this journey with God of Abraham and Isaac and Moses and a list is endless of people who made really powerful decisions in their journey with God and the impact of those decisions, who walk continually by faith, not always by sight, not ever seeing the end product. And then he ends Hebrews 11 with this incredible powerful section of Scripture where he said, look, I can't even begin to tell you about some of these characters. Man, they went through more nightmares than anyone could have ever imagined. Some of them never even saw the end product, never saw the end of their journey. They knew the promises of God were out there, and they continued to go. They never saw the results on this side of heaven, but they kept on going, know that there was something more for them. And then he goes into Hebrews 12 when he said, look, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who have gone on before us, let us keep our eyes on Jesus, shed off all the stuff that keeps us from finishing well, from running this faith with consistency. Let us keep our eyes on Him, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised His shame, who knew that in the end of it all it would be worth it no matter what I had to go through because of what I sacrificed and what I shed, hundreds of thousands of millions of people would have life, redemption, and eternal life if I'm willing to continue on to the end. And so Jesus did. And then he says to us, do the same. Do not be weary in well-doing. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
A song we sang this morning has that famous verse in it, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. That's been around for years and years and years. And we both know it's true. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. No way. I wouldn't do that. Been tempted at times. To give up, to give in. Keep on going, he says. Have such confidence in me that I will get you through. Fifth quality is godliness, piety, the obvious awareness that you really are a reflection of your time spent with God, which infers what? I spend time with God so that I begin to reflect his nature and character. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that I'm a monk walking around with robes and chanting. It means that I spend time with God, and the more I spend time with him, I begin to reflect his character. And one of the things that affects that the most is number six, and that is the way I treat people, brotherly kindness. It's interesting that John was never as bold as Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. Peter was the one who always had something to say and said it pretty, pretty, pretty quick and loud and made sure everybody heard it. That quiet man named John says one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture in 1 John chapter 4. I think it's in your sermon notes. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, I want to tell you right now, you're lying. Anyone who doesn't love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. It infers that I, I genuinely love people. All people. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. It really means I do love people. I'm not going to get into the whole issue of tolerance and all the nonsense that that has brought to us in so many ways that, that, that we don't know always sure what to do, it, do with it, but it genuinely means that I do love people. And I see beyond color. And, I, I, and I'm not saying this, I love this community, I'll, I'll, I'm hoping to stay here forever. But communities like ours are pretty bigoted. And people of other ethnic origins say it's really hard to be black or Asian in Bubba because of how I'm viewed. When I want to continue to grow in my journey with God, it means that I really do look at people as God sees them. I see beyond their ethnicity. I see beyond the color of their skin. It really means that I love people in the family of God. That more than anything else, I bear one another's burdens. I don't gossip. I maintain unity. I avoid prejudice. I, I always desire to build up and not put down. That I really do want to love people more and more. The only way to do that is the final one there, the final piece that Peter puts in that, and that is love, genuine love. The three words for love that you've all heard sermons on, I'm sure at some point or the other, phileo, which is brotherly love, eros, which is erotic love in the relationship between a man and a woman, and agape, genuine love from God. The first two are relational. They're also mutual satisfaction. The third one, agape love, comes from God and only can come from Him and only can be derived in a relationship from Him that carries itself out into people. It's what God has done for us that we want to do. It is what God has done in our lives that causes us to want to freely give that kind of love to other people. Men will really never believe that God is love unless they see it in the lives of those who claim to be followers of Him. Which is why in the midst of incredible church turmoil 
Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13. He says it this way in the message version. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but I don't love, I'm nothing more than the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his ministries, mysteries, and making everything as plain as day, but I, and I have a faith that moves mountains, but I don't love nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, even go to the stake, burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Because love never gives up. It cares for others more than self. It doesn't want to have what it doesn't have. It doesn't strut. It isn't arrogant. It doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle. It doesn't keep score for the sins of others. It doesn't rebel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the truth. It puts up with anything. It always trusts God. It always looks for the best. It never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Communion is the ultimate reminder of God's incredible love for us. Every time we do it here at Community Alliance Church, it's usually once a month, the first or the second Sunday of the month, depending on the context of the message. And as we distribute the elements, we ask you to help the person beside you. You'll notice, especially if you're new, that the, the cup and the bread are in one tray. And, and then you're going to hold your hands two incredibly simple elements, a piece of bread and a cup of grape juice. As simplistic as they are, they have incredibly profound meaning. They are the sacrifice of Jesus that he has given for all of us so that all of us can receive eternal life. And they're reminders of his body that was given, his blood that was shed so that we can have the forgiveness of sin. And the issue isn't always just simply acknowledging that. I know he did it, but that he did it for me. And I accept the penalty of my sin that he was willing to pay and I receive him into my life as Savior. And if you've done that in your life, you're free to partake. This isn't, you don't have to be a member of this church or any church, but a member of the family of God to partake of communion. Do you necessarily have had to have a perfect week? No. Do we ask you in our context to come to confession before you partake? No. Not to a priest, not in a booth, but to God. What I'd love for you to do this morning is what I'm going to do is as we share the elements together, and Justin plays quietly behind that, to take some time of reflection. God, this self-control thing is really hard for me. Father, I can't tell you the amount of times I just want to give up. There's so many times that I know I look at people through a grid, and I don't want to keep doing that, so please help me with my love for people. Whatever that may be, this is a perfect time to do that. Jesus said, every time you do communion, remember me. And so it's an opportunity to do that as well. To remember his love, his grace, and his sacrifice. And also to remember that it's never to be kept or to held so tightly that we freely can't give it away. Everything Peter describes here this morning is a biblical term called sanctification. It's growing in Christ. Not just being content with crossing the line and making sure that I'm into salvation and I'm going to heaven when I die. It's a passionate desire to be more and more like Christ. Growing in wisdom, as our statement says, intentional about that and making every effort to do that. So if there's an area in your life or two that you want to talk to God about, this is the perfect time to do it. Communion stores are going to come.
as I said a moment ago, we're just going to distribute. We're going to wait for you all to gather it and, and partake of it or hold it, I'm sorry, until everyone gets it, and then I'll leave you, lead you at the end. They're going to go through, and they're going to come back. Nothing. Some of the most amazing grace that you could have ever received through people and ministries and friends and relationships. We definitely have been, been given the most amazing grace that has come from you. And we want to be purveyors of that grace. We want to be givers of that grace. Lord, I can't believe there's anyone in this audience this morning who just wants to sit through a class, sit through a sermon, read the Bible and never really apply it and grow in our faith. But there are some things that have held us back. And so, Father, may the obvious evidence of our relationship with you be with how we live, how we love, how we act, how we treat, and the impact that goes well beyond our lives. So as we hold these elements in our hand this morning, we just want to say thank you so much for your amazing grace, for your willingness to give your life so that we could have life, for your willingness to shed your blood so that we could have forgiveness. And as we receive these elements this morning, God, give us the courage to live out what we have received from you and to passionately pursue a deep knowledge that goes beyond simple truth, but changes us and that is obvious by those that run into us when we walk out these doors. Thank you so much for your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First the bread. Sunday morning, the last two verses of this section, which is pretty much answers the question as to the why. He's given us some hows and some components, but where does it take us? What is so important about this journey? Uh, next Sunday morning, we'll get these last couple of pieces and we'll talk about the why. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for your kind attention. Is there anything we can do for you? Any way we can pray for you? There are some people that were, will be here this morning to do that as we share together. God bless you. Have an exceptional day.